like Drew said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And uh, in the Pew Bibles in front of you, that should be on page 837, uh, as my hand note says. Uh, as you guys turn there, uh, just a little bit about studying for this, I'm regularly amazed uh, that the stories in the scripture, when you do like a thorough study of them, uh, they're like drinking from a fire hose. I spent probably longer than I should have studying because of this passage, uh, architectural norms in a random fishing city in first century Palestine. Uh, and this text actually, like many texts, uh, for us it kind of has some window dressing to it, some things that would be very, very unusual to us take place. Uh, they were unusual then too, but if we focus too much on them, we might miss the point. Uh, so it's important that we don't get caught up in things like architectural norms, uh, but rather that we see that this text tells us that our deepest need is met in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Uh, so let me read the passage for us, and then uh, we'll start unpacking it. And again, it is Mark 2, verses 1 through 12 on page 837. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. For he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This passage has a ton of content packed into it, but it would be uh, a miss if we didn't notice first that this is a narrative. It's a story, which seems fairly obvious, but in stories, you get a few parts that help you kind of structure the point that the author is trying to make. So you first get a setting, things that the author thinks are either, uh, are, you can't assume, and so he's going to give them to you so that you understand where and when the story is taking place. Second, you get some sort of plot device comes in, a rising action, which is going to turn just a list of events uh, and a set of words into an actual story. And then you get the climax, a moment of apex tension, a moment where everybody is holding their breath. And then you get some form of resolution where everything kind of comes together. And in our passage in particular, because this is both 
part of a broader narrative within the Gospel of Mark, but also part of the broader scope of the entire Bible, it also leads us into the next thing that's taking place. It leads us into the next piece of the story. So let's notice a couple of these first. Setting the scene, Mark tells us first that Jesus had returned to Capernaum. Uh, So this is not Jesus' first visit. We can say that obviously. In order to return somewhere, you must have first been there. So Jesus is coming back, and as Drew pointed out last night, Capernaum acts as a sort of, not last night, last week, uh, Capernaum acts as a sort of home base for Jesus' ministry. Thus, verse 1 tells us that he was not only in Capernaum, but he was particularly at home. And that's odd considering that Jesus is not from Capernaum. So at home is a particular location uh, that he has made his home. He's in a particular place in a particular city. And this home is probably the house of Peter, where Jesus in Mark 1, verse 30, healed Peter's mother-in-law. Now, I'm struck by the fact that this passage is already challenging me, at least. Because it seems to me uh, that it is already pressing upon my view of ownership, my view of what's mine, my view of what I like to keep for myself. You see... When we started this series in Mark a few weeks back, it was pointed out that Mark is really telling a story that he most likely got from Peter. In a sense, many scholars actually say that you could retitle Mark's gospel such that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Peter by the pen of Mark, which means these words could easily be Peter's words. Yet who does Peter say the house is? It is not Peter's home. Jesus is at his home. You see, when somebody encounters Christ in the way that Peter has, in the way that I think this paralytic will, everything is refashioned. You can't hold anything back. There's no, we get to, uh, we don't get to come up with an exchange rate about I give you this and you give me that. You give everything over, such that even the place where you live, your home, becomes not yours, but becomes that of Christ's. We're getting a signal very early in this text that our exchange rate for such things is often off, and we will find out soon why. But let's continue. This text tells us that it was reported, or some translations say that people heard, that Jesus was at his home, and a crowd starts to gather at this location, so much so that it becomes difficult to enter the house. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a concert with a particularly raucous and committed fan base. Uh, If you have ever been to a political rally in which the next savior candidate is shaking hands, or if you've ever been to a sporting event where the 22-year-old athletic phenom is signing autographs, but you might then know what sort of phalanx of onlookers is standing by, not wanting to budge, not wanting to give up their space, not wanting to let anybody else through. And so they encounter this, and it becomes unimaginable for them to enter through the front door. And so why are they? Why are they so excited? Why do so many people gather? Well, we find that the theme of Mark still holds true. See, just a few weeks ago, we were learning that the preaching of the word was why Jesus came. That is why he was called. And here he is again. The point of these people gathering is no mere spectacle, but rather it is Jesus preaching the word. 
which we can assume since we don't get more content that this word is the same word that he's been teaching the entire time going back to Mark 1 verse 15 where it says and saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel so Jesus is preaching about the kingdom he's exhorting to turn from sin to believe in the kingdom of God that it has come that it has arrived and at this point we move from setting to we get our first hint at the plot developing the they arrive a band of five unnamed anonymous four friends one can imagine gripping tightly with tired hands to the sides or corners of a mat on which their fifth member lies he's experiencing some form of paralysis it's important at this point to just note what we don't actually know you see, because in many texts, whether it's J.R.R. Tolkien or whether it's Frank Peretti or anybody in between, what is put in is almost as important as what's left out. So Mark has, has intentionally left some things unsaid. Think about this. He tells us, that, or he does not tell us, we do not know, who is conceived of the idea of healing. Who of the five's idea was it to seek out Jesus? We also don't know whose idea was to carry a guy to Jesus rather than asking Jesus as some others would to come to them. Nor do we know if the they were well known to Peter and his family. Considering what takes place in the story, you hope there's some sort of social capital that they could spend here, but we're, we have no idea. We do not even know their names. So I think we can assume from these absences a few things. If we do not know whose idea the excursion to Jesus was, then we must attribute this idea to all five. To assume, as I for many years probably wrongly did, that the paralytic was merely a passive bystander in this, uh, holds some of, and pardon the political correctness phrase, but ableism. There's no reason to believe that he's a mere bystander, the victim of his energetic four friends as they carry him off to meet some teaching rabbi. Second, if we do not know the relationship he had with Peter, then we should assume no relationship at all, which means they were willing to undergo immense social casualty in order to get their friend in front of Jesus. And third, if we do not know their names, then we should assume that they could have just as well have been anyone in Capernaum, and maybe even anyone today. In fact, I would say, if we are not told who they are, we should probably view these five as a surrogate, a stand-in for us in the text. Who are we? We here are the paralytics being carried. Who are we? We are the friends who bring our friends before Jesus. With these things in mind, let's return to the story. Picking up where we left off, we find that they, in their desperation, have carried their friend an indeterminate distance to Jesus' home, only to find the entrance barred and tightly packed with a crowd. So, like any rational, fair-minded, completely reasonable group of five men, they decide to dig through the roof. <laughs> 
At this point, this is where the window dressing comes in because we could get distracted by what was it like? Was Jesus standing or sitting? Did they dig through maybe above where Bobby's sitting or did they dig like literally straight down on Jesus? Is dirt and things like that falling to the ground as he's teaching? We don't want to get caught up in that. One commentator even points out how this is a difficult thing for us. He says, the gripping technicolor detail uh, so characteristic of Mark's account of miracles may startle those of you who worry about property damage. Some might imagine the owner of the house is horrified by the destruction, the invasion of property by these men, as the teachers of the law are later horrified by the invasion of the prerogatives of God by Jesus. We have a tendency to get wrapped up in such an intrusion would mean for us. But our world is several thousand dollars and several thousand dollar roofing investments, 15 year warranties on roofs is basically unimaginable to Mark's audience. We could note that archeologically in Capernaum, uh, most houses were built out of what would be called rough, I believe it's basalt, uh, without mortar, meaning that their walls could actually only support a thatched roof. So you have this combination of reeds and branches, uh, things that would actually be needed to replace every year. So they're not doing tons of dollars in property damage. But that being said, this is still a highly unusual thing. It's not like Peter just kept more thatch in the back for when Jesus preaches and people are digging through the walls. So this passage holds particular weight. Now, we don't want to get caught up in what's unusual to us. We just want to get caught up in what's unusual in the story. It's interesting to me that this is one of the few stories that is told not only in Mark, but also in Matthew and Luke as well. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospels tell this story. John is the only gospel author who apparently thought it was not necessary to include. So what do we have here? What do we see? Five friends seeking to bring one of their own before a man who has the ability to heal. And in pursuit of healing, these five allow no obstacle to remain in their path. I'm struck by another challenge here to my easygoing, easy contented spirituality. As stand-ins for us, I think we should question what obstacles are we allowing between us and Jesus? How easily deterred are we from our scriptures and from prayer, from gathering with the body, from coming to God's people. C.S. Lewis challenged us this way in a similar light. He said, it is not that our contentment levels are too high, but rather it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. So like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Have we become easily pleased with our proximity to Jesus? Or do we desire closeness to move further in, to remove obstacles, to get there. Further, I think we see this as an encouragement to community. Everything that takes place in this story, the entire focal point is centered upon not only Jesus, but five friends who are there, who are present, who know struggles, 
who actually have the presence of mind to think of one of theirs. This requires bonds of sacrificial friendship and it requires above all that we love our neighbors as ourselves. Back to our text. After this impressive display, it does seem deserving of a response. You can imagine the scene, the tension, the anticipation as this paralytic is lowered into the room. What will happen? What will Jesus say? What will Jesus do? Somehow, Jesus always imagined, is able to blow everybody's imagination and to shock everybody in the room. You see, in this text, in verses 5 through 7, we receive both a climax and an anticlimax, depending on whose position we put ourselves in. If we're the paralytic and his five friends, this is extremely anticlimactic. You didn't come there for forgiveness of sins. You came there so that you could walk. Jesus declares to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. His four friends have to be somewhat confused, maybe even disappointed. But let us not forget that this is also a climax. You see, we have not yet been told about this, but verse 6 reveals that in the back of the room, there are these scribes, teachers of the law. And they begin questioning in their hearts. Because what Jesus has just done is no mere expression of words and no mere, it's okay, you're forgiven. But rather, what he has just done is tread upon ground which only God himself is allowed. And so for the remainder of this time, uh, I would just like to focus on three things. The climax of an accusation of blasphemy. The anticlimax of the forgiveness of sins. And the question of the easier saying which I believe resolves all the tension for us. First, a bit of background. Scribes are in the room. Who are these scribes? Even a study of the Old Testament, you wouldn't frequently come across this word. They show up, actually, as it appears, uh, during the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, as the Jewish religion transforms in the absence of God's continual speech to his people. So as the Old Testament closes, you have several hundred years where God sends no prophet, where God's presence is not tangibly felt as it was before. And the Jews have to figure out how to live in a new reality, in a new world. And in the midst of that, the idea of scribes and synagogues pop up. One commentator helps us and says, the synagogue was a lay institution that did not require the presence of a priest or formal Jewish clergy. As a result, the power of the priest is somewhat diluted by those who were learned scholars, a teacher of the law or a scribe. The Old Testament quite clearly builds for us a spirituality based on a word, based on scripture, based on book, and based on the speech of God. The word, the scriptures, are guided by the guardrails of prophets and priests who help interpret and understand and call back to faithfulness. Yet in the absence of priests who are seeking God, in the absence of prophets who are speaking God's word, all of a sudden the academics take over and they can take the text in many different ways. We thankfully today have the Holy Spirit 
but in the time before the Holy Spirit and after the final Old Testament prophet, you can imagine how these interpreters of God's word, these academics, uh, grow in power, grow in authority amongst the people, which presents us with our first challenge in this text from their perspective. We learned a few weeks ago, Jesus is teaching with authority that challenges that of the scribes. He's speaking with authority which they would not and could not match. And the people recognize it and the people declare it. He speaks as one with authority, not as our scribes do. And so the scribes, you can imagine their jealousy. It's not entirely misplaced, though. You see, the accusation of blasphemy is fairly well-grounded. Consider Exodus 34, in which we read, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him, Moses, there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, of merci a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will be, or who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Here in Exodus, forgiveness of sins is so tied to God's identity that he mentions it is in the same breath as his name. He's telling you who he is and who is he. He's the Lord who forgives sins. Or Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What you might ask are his benefits. Verse 3 who forgives all your iniquity and who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This song declares forgiveness of sins to be a reason to worship. So those who can forgive sins, we direct our praise to them. And finally, Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he says the Lord, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will remember not your sins. The prerogative of the forgiveness of sins rests with God and God alone, which means either Jesus does not understand this basic teaching of the Jewish religion, which is found all over the Old Testament, or when Jesus thinks of the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? His answer is in some way, shape, or form, God, who can forgive sins. So let's consider this. Nowhere else in the four Gospels do you have somebody come to Jesus and get something completely different than what they were asking for. Often you have people come to Jesus and ask for healing, and he heals them and uses some sort of teaching. He heals or brings back to life, and he draws them closer. He does what they want and brings them in. But here, he flips the script. The first thing he does is something they never saw coming. Son, your sins are forgiven. So just to reiterate, these five friends get on Peter's roof, four of them under their own power, a fourth supported by them. They dig through the roof. They lower their friend in, clearly desiring to see Jesus 
heal their paralytic friend, and that's not what they get. You could imagine the internal monologue. Uh, thanks. But everyone else in this room knew exactly why I was here. So, Jesus, I'm paralyzed. That is my problem. What will you do about that? This would be a sort of a letdown. But it is only a letdown if we do not know where in the cosmos we are. Where in the world do we stand? You see, we often forget our place. The paralytic has forgotten his place. Many of us have forgotten that we exist in a world where our biggest problems will not be solved by politics, by law, by a change of job, by a change of location, by a change of relationship status, by a change of the number of zeros in our bank account. We've forgotten that our problem lies much deeper than any of those things can ever solve. Our problems will continue long after elections, long after Supreme Court decisions, long after the new gym membership, long after the better diet, long after the new job, long after the new relationship, because our problems are of a different sort. The universal truth which Jesus is trying to teach us through our paralytic surrogate here is that our biggest and most immediate need as individuals and as a community is the forgiveness of our sins, the transgressions and the things that we have done before the holy God who is set as king over the entire universe. Our place in the cosmos is the position of the treasonous sinner before the judging bench of God. And if we can understand that, then we see that Jesus actually puts the paralytic's problems in the right order and deals with them biggest to smallest. Jesus here, Jesus is doing triage medicine. What is your most important problem? You are a sinner. Walking, as important as it may be, as big as it seems, is secondary, and it's not close. Surely this man has been resting all his hopes, though, deep down within him on what Jesus says, on what Jesus will do. Jesus essentially challenging his own mistaken beliefs about his own position in life might, to say the least, seem a little bit insulting. In fact, it gives him actually something in common with the scribes in the back of the room. It's very, very possible that at the moment in which Jesus forgives this man's sins, both the scribes and the man in the room, the paralytic lowered into the room, are thinking approximately the same thing. Jesus, how do you have the authority to do this? How do you have the authority to tell me what my biggest problem is? And Jesus, how do you have the authority to forgive sins, which is the prerogative of God alone? <sighs> Jesus provides us with that answer. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
This is one of Jesus' favorite terms of self-reference. He uses it all the time, which is very, very strange because it communicates like almost the exact opposite of what we want. Think of how Mark began his gospel just a page earlier. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yet here, Jesus is taking on the title Son of Man. Is this some sort of like super humble play by Jesus where he's like, I know you guys think I'm God. I'm really just the Son of Man. No. Actually, this is obscure, but one of the grandest titles in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, towards the end, there's a collection of these obscure, often overlooked writings that we call the Minor Prophets. The prophets contain within them a book titled for its author named Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, the term Son of Man is used. A little bit of background, Daniel 7 is set in the midst of a unit within Daniel's book ranging from chapter 2 to chapter 7. And in the course of this unit, the empire and the king of Babylon, God's enemies at the time, are raging war against God's people. And Daniel has this vision of these four intense, scary, powerful beasts rising up out of the ocean to afflict God's people. There's this ten-horned fourth beast who spawns another little horn, which is kind of weird, but we don't have time to get into it right now, which rages against God's people. And as the beast emerges to attack, Daniel has another vision that overlaps on that first one. John read it earlier for us, but let me read it again with this context. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, a term for God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, symbol of purity. His hair, the hair of his head was pure as wool, symbol of wisdom. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Again, a symbol of purity and intensity and wrath. A stream of fire issued and came from before him. Thousands of thousands served him. Tens, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were open. I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. The body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for, the re- as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. And then this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
One commentator notes, the human-like figure who is given privileges normally reserved for God, authority, glory, sovereign power, worship of men of every language, and an eternal kingdom. That Jesus understood himself through this lens tells us that he sees himself in a vision of suffering, enthronement, and authority. This is Jesus' answer, at least in part, to who he is. He is Daniel's man who is both divine and king. The significance of the story should not be understood in terms of Jesus' pity on a helpless cripple that moves him to heal the man's paralyzed body. Rather, the emphasis being placed on the forgiveness of sins tells us that the emphasis of this story is that God's kingdom has come. And Jesus is declaring its presence with its greatest gift, forgiveness and peace with God. In closing, let's turn our attention to a rather unusual question and the rest of the paralytic story. Starting in verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Good news. The paralytic gets healed of his paralysis. He rises on his own two feet and exits both the house and the story back into anonymity. He returns from our perspective to which he came, and the crowd in response glorifies God. But what do you do with that question? What would be easier to say? It might seem kind of unusual. What is easier, forgiveness of sins or making a man who could not previously walk, walk? In the context of this one story, it seems Mark wants us to think, right now at least, that the phrase, son, your sins are forgiven, is easier to say because there's no proof for it. If you say to somebody who cannot walk, rise, there is a very easy way to prove whether or not you have the power to do what you just said. Does he get up? Mark wants us to see, to a certain extent, that the visual evidence makes it harder to say, rise, take up your bed and go. But I think there's a part in this text that we have to understand because what happens in this passage is actually a domino that gets tipped over. 
They will knock over the next one and the next one and the next one, all the way from Mark chapter 2 unto the final end of this book where Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross. Because it might be easier in one sense to say, son, your sins are forgiven because there's no proof of it. But what does saying that require of Jesus? It requires the remainder of his sinless life. It requires tired feet, scourged legs, and about a one kilometer walk with a crossbar bearing down on his whip-scarred back. It requires a tread up a mountain, and it requires Roman centurions awaiting with a hammer and three large nails. <coughs> to regard forgiveness of sins as easier than healing, the medical complaint may seem odd from the perspective that we have. But it's about the visual. However, to regard the forgiveness of sins as harder is about one thing what it will require, which is the cross. Jesus does not presume to forgive sins, or Jesus does forgive, presume to forgive sins on the basis of grace, something that the priests in the temple could not do, something that the law could not do. How is it that Jesus can usurp the prerogatives of God and proclaim forgiveness of sins willy-nilly? How is he able to speak for God in such startling and untraditional ways? Can sin be dismissed effortlessly? No. The crucifixion will clarify this. But in this moment, what we know, what we see, is that the paralytic's deepest need and ours is satisfied in and only Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you satisfy. We thank you that you are good and that you, even when we do not, see our deepest need. That you are not satisfied with mere physical healing. You are not satisfied with mere circumstantial change. You are only satisfied when we have been atoned, when we are at peace with you. So we thank you for this text. We thank you for what you have done for us. And Jesus, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.